Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, I want to talk about the Christmas truce. I'm not Christian and I'm not in need of a truce, but I think that we all are in need of the lesson that was taught, that was learned at the Christmas truces of World War One, most famously in 1914. Uh, when in France, uh, British troops and their allies on one side and Germans on the other stopped fighting and made friends for a Christmas break before returning to war after the holidays. Lessons to be learned in both the wonder of the ceasefire and the horror of the return to fighting afterwards. On a website at worldbeyondwar.org slash Truce is all kinds of background and related songs and plays and Hollywood films and documentation and witness accounts from the Christmas truce. Here is one such account. This is taken from a book called Bullets and Billets by Bruce Bairnsfather, which you can access online at Project Gutenberg. This is from Chapter 8, Christmas Eve, A Lull in Hate. Britain cum Bosch. Shortly after the doings set forth in the previous chapter, we left the trenches for our usual days in billets. It was now nearing Christmas Day, and we knew it would fall to our lot to be back in the trenches again on the 23rd of December, and that we would, in consequence, spend our Christmas there. I remember at the time being very down on my luck about this, as anything in the nature of Christmas Day festivities was obviously knocked on the head. Now, however, looking back on it all, I wouldn't have missed that unique and weird Christmas day for anything. Well, as I said before, we went in again on the 23rd. The weather had now become very fine and cold. The dawn of the 24th brought a perfectly still, cold, frosty day. The spirit of Christmas began to permeate us all. We tried to plot ways and means of making the next day, Christmas, different in some way to others. Invitations from one dugout to another for sundry meals were beginning to circulate. Christmas Eve was, in the way of weather, everything that Christmas Eve should be. I was billed to appear at a dugout about a quarter of a mile to the left that evening to have rather a special thing in trench dinners, not quite so much bully and and makanoki about as usual. A bottle of red wine and a medley of tinned things from home deputized in their absence. The day had been entirely free from shelling, and somehow we all felt that the Boches, too, wanted to be quiet. There was a kind of an invisible, intangible feeling extending across the frozen swamp between the two lines which said, This is Christmas Eve for both of us. Something in common. About 10 p.m. I made my exit from the convivial dugout on the left of our line and walked back to my own lair. On arriving at my own bit of trench, I found several of the men standing about and all very cheerful. There was a good bit of singing and talking going on, jokes and jibes on our curious Christmas Eve, as contrasted with any former one, were thick in the air. One of my men turned to me and said, "'You can hear them quite plain, sir.' Hear what, I inquired. The Germans over there, sir, hear them singing and playing on a band or something. 
I listened. Away out across the field, among the dark shadows beyond, I could hear the murmur of voices, and an occasional burst of some unintelligible song would come floating out on the frosty air. The singing seemed to be loudest and most distinct, a bit to our right. I popped into my dugout and found the platoon commander. Do you hear the Boches kicking up that racket over there, I said? Yes, he replied. They've been at it some time. Come on, said I. Let's go along the trench to the hedge there on the right. That's the nearest point to them over there. So we stumbled along our now hard, frosted ditch and scrambling up on to the bank above strode across the field to our next bit of trench on the right. Everyone was listening. An improvised Bosch band was playing a precarious version of Deutschland, Deutschland ober alles, at the conclusion of which some of our mouth-organ experts retaliated with snatches of ragtime songs and imitations of the German tune. Suddenly we heard a confused shouting from the other side. We all stopped to listen. The shout came again. A voice in the darkness shouted in English with a strong German accent. Come over here. A ripple of mirth swept along our trench, followed by a rude outburst of mouth organs and laughter. Presently, in a lull, one of our sergeants repeated the request. Come over here. You come halfway, I come halfway, floated out of the darkness. Come on, then, shouted the sergeant. I'm coming along the hedge. Ah, but there are two of you, came back the voice from the other side. Well, anyway, after much suspicious shouting and jocular derision from both sides, our sergeant went along the hedge which ran at right angles to the two lines of trenches. He was quickly out of sight, but as we all listened in breathless silence, we soon heard a spasmodic conversation taking place out there in the darkness. Presently the sergeant returned. He had with him a few German cigars and cigarettes, which he had exchanged for a couple of Macanokis and a tin of capstan, which he had taken with him. The seance was over, but it had given just the requisite touch to our Christmas Eve, something a little human and out of the ordinary routine. After months of vindictive sniping and shelling, this little episode came as an invigorating tonic and a welcome relief to the daily monotony of antagonism. It did not lessen our ardor or determination, but just put a little human punctuation mark in our lives of cold and humid hate. Just on the right day, too, Christmas Eve. But as a curious episode, this was nothing in comparison to our experience on the following day. On Christmas morning, I awoke very early and emerged from my dugout into the trench. It was a perfect day, a beautiful cloudless blue sky, the ground hard and white fading off towards the wood in a thin, low-lying mist. It was such a day as is invariably depicted by artists on Christmas cards, the ideal Christmas day of fiction. Fancy all this hate, war, and discomfort on a day like this, I thought to myself. The whole spirit of Christmas seemed to be there, so much so that I remember thinking, this indescribable something in the air, this peace and goodwill feeling, surely will have some effect on the situation here today. And I wasn't far wrong. It did, around us anyway, and I have always been so glad to think of my luck in firstly being actually in the trenches on Christmas Day, and secondly being on the spot where quite a unique little episode took place. Everything looked merry and bright that morning. The discomfort seemed to be less, somehow. They seemed to have epitomized themselves in intense, frosty cold. It was just the sort of day for peace to be declared. It would have made such a good finale. 
I should like to have suddenly heard an immense siren blowing. Everybody to stop and say, what was that? Siren blowing again, appearance of a small figure running across the frozen mud waving something. He gets closer, a telegraph boy with a wire. He hands it to me. With trembling fingers, I open it. War off, return home, George R.I. Cheers! But no, it was a nice fine day, that was all. Walking about the trench a little later, discussing the curious affair of the night before, we suddenly became aware of the fact that we were seeing a lot of evidence of Germans. Heads were bobbing about and showing over their parapet in a most reckless way, and as we looked, this phenomenon became more and more pronounced. A complete Bosch figure suddenly appeared on the parapet and looked about itself. This complaint became infectious. It didn't take our Bert long to be up on the skyline it is one long grind to ever keep him off it this was the signal for more bosch anatomy to be disclosed and this was replied to by all our alfs and bills until in less time than it takes to tell half a dozen or so of each of the belligerents were outside their trenches and were advancing toward each other in no man's land a strange sight truly I clambered up and over our parapet and moved out across the field to look. Clad in a muddy suit of khaki and wearing a sheepskin coat and a balaclava helmet, I joined the throng about halfway across to the German trenches. It all felt most curious. Here were these sausage-eating wretches who had elected to start this infernal European fracas and in so doing had brought us all into the same muddy pickle as themselves. This was my first real sight of them at close quarters. Here they were, the actual practical soldiers of the German army. There was not an atom of hate on either side that day, and yet on our side, not for a moment, was the will to war and the will to beat them relaxed. It was just like the interval between the rounds in a friendly boxing match. The difference in type between our men and theirs was very marked. There was no contrasting the spirit of the two parties. Our men in their scratch costumes of dirty, muddy khaki, with their various assorted headdresses of woolen helmets, mufflers, and battered hats, were a light-hearted, open, humorous collection, as opposed to the somber demeanor and stolid appearance of the Huns in their gray-green faded uniforms, top boots, and pork pie hats. The shortest effect I can give of the impression I had was that our men, superior, broad-minded, more frank and lovable beings, were regarding these faded, unimaginative products of perverted culture as a set of objectionable but amusing lunatics whose heads had got to be eventually smacked. Look at that one over there, Bill, our Bert would say, as he pointed out some particularly curious member of the party. I strolled about amongst them all and sucked in as many impressions as I could. Two or three of the Boches seemed to be particularly interested in me, and after they had walked round me once or twice with sullen curiosity stamped on their faces, one came up and said, Officer? I nodded my head, which means yes in most languages, and besides, I can't talk German. These devils, I could see, all wanted to be friendly, but none of them possessed the open, frank geniality of our men. However, everyone was talking and laughing and souvenir hunting. I spotted a German officer, some sort of lieutenant, I should think, and being a bit of a collector, I intimated to him that I had taken a fancy to some of his buttons. We both then said things to each other, which neither understood, and agreed to do a swap. 
I brought out my wire clippers and with a few deft snips removed a couple of his buttons and put them in my pocket. I then gave him two of mine in exchange. Whilst this was going on, a babbling of guttural ejaculations emanating from one of the lager shifters told me that some idea had occurred to someone. Suddenly one of the Boshes ran back to his trench and presently reappeared with a large camera. I posed in a mixed group for several photographs and have ever since wished I had fixed up some arrangement for getting a copy. No doubt framed editions of this photograph are reposing on some Hun mantelpiece, showing clearly and unmistakably to admiring strafers how a group of perfidious English surrendered unconditionally on Christmas Day to the brave Deutschers. Slowly the meeting began to disperse, a sort of feeling that the authorities on both sides were not very enthusiastic about this fraternizing seemed to creep across the gathering. We parted, but there was a distinct and friendly understanding that Christmas Day would be left to finish in tranquility. The last I saw of this little affair was a vision of one of my machine gunners, who was a bit of an amateur hairdresser in civil life, cutting the unnaturally long hair of a docile Bosch who was patiently kneeling on the ground whilst the automatic clippers crept up the back of his neck. Let me turn now to an eyewitness account from Frank Richards, who was a British soldier at the Christmas Truce in 1914, uh, and who published this account in Old Soldiers Never Die in 1933, and it has been republished in numerous books and websites. Frank Richards wrote, On Christmas morning, we stuck up a board with a Merry Christmas on it. The enemy had stuck up a similar one. Platoons would sometimes go out for 24 hours rest. It was a day at least out of the trench and relieved the monotony a bit. And my platoon had gone out of its way the night before, but a few of us stayed behind to see what would happen. Two of our men then threw their equipment off and jumped on the parapet with their hands above their heads. Two of the Germans done the same and commenced to walk up the riverbank, our two men going to meet them. They met and shook hands, and then we all got out of the trench. Buffalo Bill, the company commander, rushed into the trench and endeavored to prevent it, but he was too late. The whole of the company were now out, and so were the Germans. He had to accept the situation, so soon he and the other company officers climbed out too. We and the Germans met in the middle of no man's land. Their officers were also now out. Our officers exchanged greetings with them. One of the German officers said that he wished he had a camera to take a snapshot, but they were not allowed to carry cameras. Neither were our officers. We mucked in all day with one another. They were Saxons, and some of them could speak English. By the look of them, their trenches were as bad a state as our own. One of their men, speaking in English mentioned that he had worked in Brighton for some years and that he was fed up to the neck with this damned war and would be glad when it was all over. We told him that he wasn't the only one that was fed up with it. We did not allow them in our trench, and they did not allow us in theirs. The German company commander asked Buffalo Bill if he would accept a couple of barrels of beer and assured him that they would not make his men drunk. They had plenty of it in the brewery. He accepted the offer with thanks, and a couple of their men rolled the barrels over, and we took them into our trench. The German officer sent one of his men back to the trench, who appeared shortly after carrying a tray with bottles and glasses on it. Officers of both sides clinked glasses and drunk one another's health. Buffalo Bill had presented them with a plum pudding just before. 
The officers came to an understanding that the unofficial truce would end at midnight. At dusk, we went back to our respective trenches. The two barrels of beer were drunk, and the German officer was right. If it was possible for a man to have drunk the two barrels himself, he would have bursted before he had got drunk. French beer was rotten stuff. Just before midnight, we all made it up not to commence firing before they did. At night, there was always plenty of firing by both sides if there were no working parties or patrols out. Mr. Richardson, a young officer who had just joined the battalion and was now a platoon officer in my company, wrote a poem during the night about the Briton and the Bosch meeting in No Man's Land on Christmas Day, which he read out to us. A few days later, it was published in the Times or Morning Post, I believe. During the whole of Boxing Day, we never fired a shot, and they the same. Each side seemed to be waiting for the other to set the ball a-rolling. One of their men shouted across in English and inquired how we had enjoyed the beer. We shouted back and told him it was very weak, but that we were very grateful for it. We were conversing off and on during the whole of the day. We were relieved that evening at dusk by a battalion of another brigade. We were mighty surprised as we had heard no whisper of any relief during the day. We told the men who relieved us how we had spent the last couple of days with the enemy, and they told us that by what they had been told, the whole of the British troops in the line, with one or two exceptions, had mucked in with the enemy. They had only been out of action themselves 48 hours after being 28 days in the front-line trenches. They also told us that the French people had heard how we had spent Christmas Day and were saying all manner of nasty things about the British Army. Let me turn now to the lyrics of a song by the great singer-songwriter-musician John McCutcheon called Christmas in the Trenches, a song that he describes having sung in Germany and having met rather elderly veterans at his show who assured him that they were among the Germans who participated in the Christmas truces and that they had had a very difficult time over the years getting anyone to believe that it had happened. And here it was in a song by an American. And the lyrics go like this. My name is Francis Tolliver. I come from Liverpool. Two years ago, the war was waiting for me after school. To Belgium and to Flanders, to Germany, to here. I fought for king and country I love dear. T'was Christmas in the trenches, where the frost so bitter hung. The frozen fields of France were still, no Christmas song was sung. Our families back in England were toasting us that day, their brave and glorious lads so far away. I was lying with my messmate on the cold and rocky ground, when across the lines of battle came a most peculiar sound. Says I, now listen up, my boys, each soldier strained to hear, as one young German voice sang out so clear. He's singing bloody well, you know, my partner says to me. Soon, one by one, each German voice joined in in harmony. The cannons rested silent, the gas clouds rolled no more, as Christmas brought us respite from the war. As soon as they were finished and a reverent pause was spent, God rest ye merry gentlemen struck up some lads from Kent. The next they sang was Stille Nacht, tis silent night, says I, and in two tongues one song filled up that sky. 
There's someone coming toward us, the front-line sentry cried. All sights were fixed on one lone figure trudging from their side. His truce flag, like a Christmas star, shone on that plain so bright as he bravely strode unarmed into the night. Soon one by one, on either side, walked into no man's land. With neither gun nor bayonet we met there, hand to hand. We shared some secret brandy and we wished each other well. And in a flare-lit soccer game, we gave them hell. We traded chocolates, cigarettes, and photographs from home, these sons and fathers far away from families of their own. Young Sanders played his squeeze box, and they had a violin, this curious and unlikely band of men. Soon daylight stole upon us, and France was France once more. With sad farewells, we each prepared to settle back to war. But the question haunted every heart that lived that wondrous night. Whose family have I fixed within my sights? T'was Christmas in the trenches, where the frost so bitter hung. The frozen fields of France were warmed as songs of peace were sung. For the walls they'd kept between us to exact the work of war had been crumbled and were gone forevermore. My name is Francis Tolliver. In Liverpool I dwell. Each Christmas come since World War I, I've learned its lessons well. That the ones who call the shots won't be among the dead and lame. And on each end of the rifle, we're the same. Next, these are the lyrics to a song by Joe Henry and Garth Brooks that's been recorded by Garth Brooks. It's called Bellow Wood. Oh, the snowflakes fell in silence over Bellow Wood that night, for a Christmas truce had been declared by both sides of the fight. As we lay there in our trenches, the silence broke in two by a German soldier singing a song that we all knew. Though I did not know the language, the song was Silent Night. Then I heard my buddy whisper, All is calm and all is bright. Then the fear and doubt surrounded me, cause I'd die if I was wrong, but I stood up in my trench, and I began to sing along. Then across the frozen battlefield another's voice joined in, until one by one each man became a singer of the hymn. Then I thought that I was dreaming, for right there in my sight stood the German soldier, neath the falling flakes of white, and he raised his hand and smiled at me, as if he seemed to say, Here's hoping we both live to see us find a better way. Then the devil's clock struck midnight, and the skies lit up again, and the battlefield where heaven stood was blown to hell again. But for just one fleeting moment, the answer seemed so clear. Heaven's not beyond the clouds. It's just beyond the fear. No, heaven's not beyond the clouds. It's for us to find it here. In 2001, in an Australian publication called School Magazine, Aaron Shepard wrote a letter that seems to be a fictional but composite uh, based on numerous accounts from the Christmas truces that a participant might have sent home to his sister. You can read it at worldbeyondwar.org slash Christmas Truce, uh, along with a play that can be performed that's based on the letter. But this was the account that Aaron Shepard gave following the letter in his publication. 
The Christmas Truce of 1914 has been called by Arthur Conan Doyle one human episode amid all the atrocities. It is certainly one of the most remarkable incidents of World War I and perhaps of all military history. Inspiring both popular songs and theater, it has endured as an almost archetypal image of peace. Starting in some places on Christmas Eve and in others on Christmas Day, the truce covered as much as two-thirds of the British-German front, with French and Belgians involved as well. Thousands of soldiers took part. In most places, it lasted at least through Boxing Day, and in some through mid-January. Perhaps most remarkably, it grew out of no single initiative but sprang up in each place spontaneously and independently. Unofficial and spotty as the truce was, there have been those convinced it never happened, that the whole thing was made up. Others have believed it happened but that the news was suppressed. Neither is true. Though little was printed in Germany, the truce made headlines for weeks in British newspapers, with published letters and photos from soldiers at the front. In a single issue, the latest rumor of German atrocities might share space with a photo of British and German soldiers crowded together, their caps and helmets exchanged, smiling for the camera. Historians, on the other hand, have shown less interest in an unofficial outbreak of peace. There has been only one comprehensive study of the incident, Christmas Truce by Malcolm Brown and Shirley Seaton, Secker and Warburg, London, 1984, a companion volume to the author's 1981 BBC documentary, Peace in No Man's Land. The book features a large number of first-hand accounts from letters and diaries. Nearly everything described in my fictional letter is drawn from these accounts, though I have heightened the drama somewhat by selecting, arranging, and compressing. In my letter, I've tried to counteract two popular misconceptions of the truce. One is that only common soldiers took part in it while officers opposed it. Few officers opposed it, and many took part. The other is that neither side wished to return to fighting. Most soldiers, especially British, French, and Belgian, remained determined to fight and win. Sadly, I also had to omit the Christmas Day games of football, or soccer as it's called in the U.S., often falsely associated with the truce. The truth is that the terrain of no man's land ruled out formal games, though certainly some soldiers kicked around balls and makeshift substitutes. Another false idea about the truce was held even by most soldiers who were there, that it was unique in history. Though the Christmas truce is the greatest example of its kind, informal truces had been a long-standing military tradition. During the American Civil War, for instance, rebels and Yankees traded tobacco, coffee, and newspapers, fished peacefully on opposite sides of a stream, and even gathered blackberries together. Some degree of fellow feeling had always been common among soldiers sent to battle. Of course, all that has changed in modern times. Today, soldiers kill at great distances, often with the push of a button and a sighting on a computer screen. Even where soldiers come face to face, their languages and cultures are often so diverse as to make friendly communication unlikely. No, we should not expect to see another Christmas truce. Yet still, what happened? on that Christmas of 1914 may inspire the peacemakers of today. For now, as always, the best time to make peace is long before the armies go to war.
Everything I've been reading and much more can be found at worldbeyondwar.org slash Christmas Truce. And at worldbeyondwar.org, you can find many ways to get involved in initiatives aimed at preventing wars before they start and de-escalating and ending them once they have started, including ceasefires and truces. Why not a Christmas truce? Why not a New Year's truce? Why not an Olympics truce in the coming year? Anything to take a break from the madness of war long enough to make efforts to indeed find, as we long since should have found, a better way. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.